Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, South Sudan's combatant signed a new peace agreement in September 2018. Is it working? Gabonese President Ali Bembongo has been in and out of foreign hospitals since October 2018. In the meantime, there was a failed coup attempt against his government. How will this end? Plus, we have an in-depth conversation on the Gulf state's interference in the Horn of Africa. We discuss why this has the potential to go very badly. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his rival, Riek Machar, back in September of 2018, signed a new ceasefire agreement known as the Revitalized Agreement on the Resolution of Conflict in South Sudan. The agreement was brokered by the president of neighboring Sudan and includes a ceasefire by Saturday, the forming of a transitional government within four months, and the release of all political prisoners. Some are hailing it as a breakthrough. Others say it's not going to address the underlining drivers of violence. What's really happening in Sudan? Joining me today to discuss the fragile, incomplete peace process is Zach Verton, the author of the new book, A Rope from the Sky, The Making and Unmaking of the World's Newest State. Rachel Hacker, a former Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Africa. And Gottfried Musila, a expert on international law and security. Zach, how do we get here? It seems like we keep reviving the same deal over and over again with the same leaders. Now, you recently wrote a book about South Sudan's independence uh, and the civil war. You know, do you think this represents a new opportunity? Yeah, there is some deja vu, and I'm afraid I'm not optimistic, Judd, at least not in the short term. I think some of the same bad ingredients that ultimately poisoned the first peace process and that peace deal remain. Um, number one is this class of SPLM elites that you reference, who I think are too disconnected from ordinary citizens, who have for far too long sat atop South Sudan's power structure. And two, uh, this deal was always going to require um, really constructive regional participation. Regional rivalries and competing national interests, however, uh, poisoned the first process. And while that regional landscape, I think, has changed a bit, uh, those problematic dynamics remain. The UN Special Envoy for South Sudan just recently said that fighting has greatly diminished. But what they pointed to is the role of Sudan, which has historically supported Mashar, and Uganda, which has historically supported Salva Kiir. And they say that this is a key factor in why, at least for now, there has been less violence. Rachel, you know, why do you think this is significant? Is this enough? You know, there's a lot of other things that are happening in the region right now. So Sudan, I mean, the NCP is facing these protests. How much longer are they really going to be able to focus on South Sudan? That's historically been a challenge for the level of effort that they've put in to actually enforcing a peace process in, in South Sudan. Uganda, you can kind of make a similar argument. And both of these actors have done things that are de- destabilizing in the past. So, yes, I mean, I think uh, David Shearer made a really good point that violence over the past few months has decreased substantially. But there are a lot of things that haven't really been sorted out. You know, Uganda, there's rumors that they are um, supporting both Mashar and then the government militias and their operations against Cirillo and the Equatorias. Um, if that's a factor, that is also destabilizing. Let's talk about Thomas Cirillo. Uh, he was formerly part of the government and now has started his own rebel group, the National Salvation Front. He is uh, from the Equatorias. Most of the fighting that's ongoing right now is between Thomas Cirillo and the government. How do we think about this third actor? Um, yeah, I think it has demonstrated for people that this isn't simply a 
Dinka Nuer conflict, it isn't one simply about Salvakir versus Riyak Mishar, and that this has really fractured uh, South Sudanese society uh, across regions and across ethnic groups. And Thomas Cirillo was uh, previously in the government before ultimately breaking off and starting his own faction. I think we should all be paying very close attention um, to the fires that are uh, currently um, raging in Equatoria. Patrick, let me bring you into the conversation. I think it's important to recall that at, at one point, Thomas Cirillo was thought of as an alternative president, someone mm. that could step in, that wasn't from any either of the polarizing um, ends, the Nue and, and the Dinka. And I think that he might feel that he has been marginalized by the agreement uh, because I think it reserves a very small role for himself. Uh, and now he's styling himself as a representative of Equatorian interests. So I think that to the extent that the Equatorians would buy into the idea that he represents their key interests, which is uh, federalism, which allows them to run their own affairs, uh, and in fact to uh, to stay out to stay out of the Dinka Nuer conflict, I think that his message will continue to have purchase. So a lot of problems with this this agreement, right? It's still very narrow. Doesn't include, as Zach said, a broader the broader South Sudan political class. Godfrey, you made a great point about about Cirillo. We've talked about the inter- international actors. We've also have been lulled into a false sense of of progress because it's been the rainy season. By the time this episode airs in early March, we will be straight into the dry season. So a lot of things are going to come um, together in that point. Maybe or maybe not, they'll have actually fleshed out what the agreement is. Maybe or maybe not, Mashar will actually. Um, come to Juba, right, and join the government. And now armies will be unlocked by their change in weather. And this brings in the human rights component. Godfrey, you served on the UN Commission for Human Rights. Can you tell us a little about everyday South Sudanese are doing? The UN uh, in Juba is uh, saying that, you know, the fighting has, uh, you know, reduced in in many parts of the country. Uh, 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 They're saying as well that uh, some uh, IDPs might have begun living. Uh, They're suggesting that maybe 40% of them are expressing interest uh, in going back home. But the situation on the ground remains dire. There's a fatigue among the people. Uh, about these elite arrangements, mm. which do not seem to take uh, civilians into uh, into consideration. South Sudanese will be watching to see whether, uh, in fact, the, the peace holds. Uh, we just learned that uh, the um, uh, former detainees might have, in fact, agreed to join the government. Salvakia might be uh, wanting to have as many folks on his side as possible, uh, so that by the time the you know the the, the, the government is formed, uh, he would have a substantial uh, uh, voice and be able to actually determine what what comes out of the transition. Okay, so Rachel was very clear that she is pessimistic. Zach was pessimistic. I'll put my cards on the table and add my pessimism. Godfrey, is there a little optimism in that, or where are you? I think there's a little optimism. I think that the fatigue that people have uh, perhaps Sudan's role, if the center holds in Khartoum, uh, they have an economic interest to ensure that the peace agreement works, because uh, they'll be deriving quite a bit of revenues from uh, you know the pumping of oil. So I am partially optimistic. Partially optimistic. optimistic. <laughs> I'm, yeah. do a, I'm afraid. 
Go yeah. ahead, go ahead, Zach. <laughs> no, I just listening to Godfrey and talk yeah. about the same yeah. elite arrangements and yeah. some of the former detainees yeah. come back in. Um, look, I'm afraid I think one of the most important things for real transformation in South Sudan is going to be generational change. I don't think we're very good at thinking about these things in the intervals that we should be, uh, not in this week or this month uh, or even the first year of this peace agreement, but in five and 10 and 15 year terms. Uh, we also should be starting to invest in and partner with uh, the 30-somethings in South Sudan. To me, like we have a ceasefire, that's a really positive development. It seems to be holding, but to what end? I mean, to Zach's point, and even to Godfrey's point, like it's the same players. Um, and so I think there's an outstanding question of should they be rewarded for causing all of the destruction that's happened since 2013 by having yet another role in the government? And there's not really an alternative to that at this point, um, but maybe in time there can be. There's a, a, a great book about the end of the Angolan Civil War, or at least a pause in the fighting in the 1990s, and uh, a journalist goes out and writes a book about it. And he keeps saying, the people are, they're war weary, they're tired of war, and that's why peace is opening up. And everyday Angolan said, we were never for the war. We've been war weary from the beginning. It's the elites that have been the ones who propel you. And I think that's a really important framework, both to think about where we are, and also to get it at Zach's point, is that we need to see a new generation of leaders come up. Any parting shots on South Sudan? There's a strong uh, sense of entitlement among the older leaders that believe they fought for independence, they fought for liberation, and they need to cash in. The South Sudan is in diaspora who are educated, who are really invested in seeing their country uh, do well, uh, don't usually get a, a place at the table. Uh, so it's critical if things hold uh, that South Sudanese leaders tap into uh, a rich uh, much more educated, uh, young uh, population that is out there in the, in the world. I've been waiting for months to talk about Gabon. And back in October of 2018, the president of Gabon, Ali Ben Bongo, suffered a stroke while he was in Saudi Arabia. He was there for about a month, and then he was transferred to Morocco. And then in January, a group of junior officers stormed the public radio station, and they announced that Bongo had been removed from power. The political situation in Gabon is under control, so says the government. Spokesman for the government announced the killing of two suspected plotters and arrest of seven others just hours after they took over the state radio in a bid to end 50 years of rule by President Ali Bongo's family. The coup didn't take. Uh, but Bongo really isn't in charge either. They flew him back in. He swore in a new cabinet and went back to Morocco, where, in theory, he is you know, recuperating from the stroke and other associated illnesses. But I don't think the center can hold. Rachel, we've seen this movie before. How is this going to end? So, yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen this movie before. And this time, it's not like Mali, where a junior officer successfully overthrew the government and said, OK, I'm in charge, and people actually bought into that. Um, from everything that I've been able to tell, this is five guys who were immediately stopped. And they were smart in going after the radio station. But to me, the fact that the, the rest of the military responded the way that they did to tamp this down tells me that Bongo still has control over, over them. And um, he was and a influence. former defense minister, so he has these real deep ties to the military. So that loyalty is still there. As long as that holds, they're going to continue to be his, his guarantor. Um, for as long as he's ill and or until he can put some kind of succession plan in place. The longer that he's ill, and particularly if that transitions to him being incapacitated, which we've seen that before too, yeah, right? Saw in Nigeria. Right. Um, then the higher likelihood that somebody tries to step in and fill those shoes. And so it's 
to Bongo's advantage to create some sort of plan and let people know about that should that situation arise. This family has been in charge of this country since 1967. Omar Bongo was the second president of Gabon, and then his son took over when he passed away. Um, the, one of the brothers, Frederick, Frederic is in charge of the intelligence service. One of the sisters, Pascaline, is still very powerful and in the mix. And yet, there isn't really an uproar on the streets, right? The coup had no fanfare for the most part. There have been protests in in Gabon in historically in the 90s and around some of the fraudulent elections, but nothing around this particular event. It's such an interesting contrast to Togo, where another family, father and son duo, have been in charge since 1965, and there's been almost two years of protest. Where is civil society? Where is the opposition? Gabonese civil society is traditionally weak. The leaders that I've seen express themselves around Ali Bongo uh, illness have decried a lack of accountability, a lack of information. They sought to know what was going on when he was in Morocco. Merely communicating to them that he's alive was not adequate for them. The opposition, in fact, opposed uh, a reinterpretation of the constitution that would allow the vice president to, to take over. But the opposition has been weakened since the last presidential elections, which, as you know, um, uh, Jinping ended up on, on the losing side uh, and then subsequently boycotted the, the elections that came after. To uh, himself president as well. Uh, he did. Bongo, of course, is, a, is an oil operator. Uh, he co-opted some of the leader, opposition leaders. Uh, so it's not clear exactly where they stand, although they, they have stood strongly in favor of interpreting the constitution the right way. They see a reinterpretation of the constitution as an attempt to perpetuate mm. uh, the Bongo leadership, hoping that he gets well and com- comes back to, you know, to take over. Zach, this doesn't look tenable, right, in the long run. Bongo's in power, barely. He survived a coup. As Godfrey mentioned, the constitutional court, you know, kind of fiddled a little bit so they could get the vice president in charge. What's your thoughts? You know, uh, I knew this president was a colorful character, but I recently learned that Ali B was once upon a time an aspiring funk singer and put out a 1977 album called Brand New Man. He's still recording music, actually. Yeah, He's yeah, still yeah, recording yeah. music. Wow. Now. Uh, but this this is seriously funky. Well, he's not recording any music right now. Not long in ago. <laughs> I mean, maybe he is. There's a new beat behind it. My point is that I'm not convinced Ali B can reinvent himself again as a, quote, brand new man. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, the other actor that we haven't talked about here is the French. They're going to be incredibly important. They have deep historical ties. They have military presence. Um, In 1964, there was actually a coup attempt in Gabon. Um, It was just for a couple of days. And in that instance, the French... Uh, deployed troops into Gabon and uh, reinstalled the first president, Leon Ba. Um, So I think that they're going to play an important part in whatever transition. But Rachel, what do you think? French ties to all of their former colonies are still strong. Um, So I think it will be interesting to see what their take on this is. If For right now, it seems to be pretty quiet. Um, So they're probably just a wait-and-see mode. Zach, shared a fun fact. I'm going to share a fun fact about Gabon. And maybe it's because of the French connection. They have one of the highest consumptions per capita of champagne in the world. Hmm. Uh, according to a report last year, they're in the top 10. It's a small population, but what it tells you is the disparity. You leave Libreville, you leave a couple streets in Libreville, and you can get a sense of, of the distinction between being in society. Just maybe another word on, on the French connection. They have enjoyed a bit of cool relations, uh, particularly after the French went after the family to control of some of the properties uh, in, in, in France. There's a corruption. Uh, corruption. Corrupt, yeah, I mean, a lot of money stashed in France in buildings and so on. That's a great point, Gottfried. 
let's shift to our big conversation, the paradigm. Here in Washington, when uh, policymakers think about Africa, global community, they generally think about Europe as an ally, and they think about China, and now Russia as an adversary, and they don't really see the full chessboard. How many different countries across the world are investing in Africa, are doing diplomacy, are mili- have military relationships? And the place that we're finally seeing this dramatically um, that is, I think, finally reaching a Washington audience is the Gulf states. Zach wrote an article um, just recently for Foreign Affairs on this. He's actually resident in Doha at the uh, Brookings Institution there. Zach, can you tell us a little about what the Gulf states doing in particularly the Horn of Africa? So these small cash-rich states are inserting themselves in the Horn of Africa really as never before. And this surge in economic and political and military activity is really reshaping dynamics on both sides of the Red Sea. In the U.S., in international institutions, in academia, we have Africa experts. We have Middle East experts, and they don't really necessarily talk to one another, and they don't really understand each other. And that's being challenged right now by this new flurry of activity, which I think is both rendering old notions of political geography obsolete, um, but also challenging how we all do business. While all the Gulf states and uh, Turkey are involved in this game, it's really the UAE that's been the most assertive uh, by far. Um, and this, the most tangible manifestation, in my view, of this new, quote, scramble for Africa um, is the building of ports and military bases on the Red Sea coast. First, I think they see commercial ports in the Horn as giving them access to Africa's expanding co- consumer class, right? So 100 million in Ethiopia and uh, many more beyond. Second, and I'd argue maybe most importantly, there's a hope that new ports uh, together with control of Yemen's south coast and the ports there uh, will position uh, the Emiratis to shape the future of maritime trade, both in in the Red Sea and the Western Indian Ocean. And so I think there's a much bigger game here um, that is about the horn, but it has a broader um, kind of landscape as well. And in this, they see China coming. Trade volume is growing as a, as a result of One Belt, One Road. And rather than 10 or 15 years from now be totally supplanted by the Chinese, uh, I think the Emiratis want to be a part of that game. So that's two. Uh, third, I think these they've established military outposts, Gulf states, um, both to prosecute the war in Yemen, but also to uh, project themselves and, uh, and protect regional security interests in the long term. Uh, and finally, um, this is about the Arab Gulf spat, right? So each of these states have snatched up territory and relationships with African clients in some way as a hedge against regional rivals. Um, in some ways, I think uh, the chessboard of Middle Eastern power politics are, is now expanding to the Horn of Africa. We think about our interests and how they may or may not be or hindered by the Chinese uh, encroachment in Africa, but we really understand that China moving into Africa has actually set other countries um, to change the way in which they think about the continent because they see themselves potentially being crowded out of this market. And it's not as acute, but the Saudis, UAE, Qatar, they're all playing a role in, in West Africa as well. So um, Horn of Africa, by virtue of proximity and because of some of these key you know, uh, commercial maritime um, passageways, gets most of the attention. But I just want to put that out there. I know that a lot of people like the scramble for Africa analogy. New, maybe I don't new, like it. The, the new scramble, the yeah. The new scramble for Africa. Maybe I, my take is the new great game in Africa. Gottfried, from where you stand, how do African states, African public see this new attention from Gulf states? Uh, we've seen as well Israel. 
uh, you know, moving in quite strongly in agriculture, in in security, and so on. Just renewed ties with Chad, and they're flirting with Sudan. So I think for the Africans on the street, any opportunity that exists for governments to obtain aid and so on to improve economic situation on the continent will be seen positively. There have been complaints uh, and quite acute about. Uh, governments uh, partnering with foreign government, China and Israel, obtaining tools for surveillance and so on. So it's also seen negatively from from a privacy human rights uh, human rights perspective. Uh, but I just wanted to make the point that um, uh, that these interactions might actually exacerbate some of the conflict that exists. Uh, Sudan and and Egypt uh, they have a territorial uh, conflict. Eritrea and Djibouti, um, Djibouti and so. Somalia, uh, and then Ethiopia and Eritrea, although uh, uh, the UAE has just intervened to, in fact, uh, broker uh, an agreement that now is opening up opportunities in, in, in the region. So those interactions may, might, in fact, in, in essence, uh, exacerbate some of the, the conflict that exists. As the Ethiopia-Eritrea uh, situation shows, they might, in fact, improve relations for the benefit of the peoples of both countries. It's a really interesting point, Godfrey. So, Zach, as you've been living in the Gulf, do Gulf governments, Gulf states understand that they are kicking a hornet's nest potentially, or do they see just the positive sides, as Godfrey mentioned? And then, Rachel, maybe you can expand a little bit more about how this could go terribly wrong. I don't think there's a terribly uh, deep understanding of domestic politics in most of these horn countries. Um, and I'm not sure there's uh, much of an interest in understanding it, right? The, these Gulf states are, are throwing their weight around and throwing around their uh, money. African states, if they can harness it, this can be in their interest, but it's highly asymmetric at the moment. So um, just as an example, you mentioned um, the Emiratis and the Saudis brokering uh, the peace deal in, or the initial rapprochement in Ethiopia and Eritrea. And I think that that initial rapprochement, and there's a long way to go, by the way, uh, was really driven by domestic politics in Ethiopia and Eritrea. And and I think um, the Gulf states came in at a late stage and provided um, some sweeteners, and that's absolutely necessary. I'm not convinced they played a significant role in in brokering it. So I think there are a lot of risks. To Zach's point, I don't think um, Gulf states in general really understand what they're getting themselves involved in. In the 2000s, when Abdullah was still around, you know, they viewed Sudan as potential bread basket for the kingdom and bought up huge tracts of farmland. They were never really developed. And now they're they're back in East Africa now that there's been a total change in leadership in the kingdom. Um, so from their vantage point, I think this is kind of uncharted territory in that they're dealing with actors that they don't really understand. Um, from the African perspective, this also has a lot of risks. And I think whether or not the Gulf investment really starts to kind of trickle down to average people will be very, very telling. One notable thing about the UAE in building the base that they did in 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 Eritrea, one that gave substantial development and money that that government really could use. Oh, it brought us in from the cold, really totally. helped them lift sanctions, so, uh, a long sort of ostracized regime as a result of this. And so the consequences are Abi clear. In it Ethiopia did. to do something about this. But it also provided a really useful launching point for operations in Hudeda, right. right? So, you know, there are dual motivations that are happening here. And I think from the Gulf's perspective, their goals of economic dividends, uh, strategic military locations, not just for themselves, but also to take those away from Iran. Those are fueling their involvement and how African states will try to entice them and, in order to get whatever they want out of the equation. I think that's an open question. 
the interesting point is that this extraordinary change happens in Eritrea, and it happens in large part uh, because there's a falling out in Djibouti over the existing port there that they'd managed for a long time. And as a result, they don't put up a military base there. And thus, this chain of events begins uh, involving Eritrea and Ethiopia. To me, that's a huge risk. Their economic involvement in Djibouti is longstanding. Saudi, you know, interest in having some sort of military role for operations in Yemen, longstanding. Dubai Ports World, yes, they've been there for forever. And yes, they had... tremendous impact on Djibouti becoming a major commercial port. Um, But China came in and built a bigger port. So how much are you actually paying attention to the other players outside of your small region and what their goals are? This is a complicated problem set. These are interlocking issues. They're building on each other. As everyone has mentioned, not all the actors have a full understanding of what their counterparts' interests or politics are. And so it brings us to the final question is, what should the United States, or what should African governments, or what should uh, the Gulf or friends of this region do? And so I'll leave it up to everyone to sort of hone in on where they want to focus. But I think we are getting to a place, thanks to great work by Zach and other scholars, of understanding the problem, or as my old boss used to say, admiring the problem. And now (laughs) I think we need to pivot to what should we be doing? Godfrey, you want to take a first crack at it? This jockeying for influence in the region, I think, presents great opportunities for African governments to cut deals that advance the interests of their people. But that, of course, is not always the case. One would hope that uh, as African governments engage with with this uh, new interest that that the uh, uh, continent is is attracting, they should do so in favor of of their people in terms of strengthening uh, economic development, uh, fostering a secure environment for people to be able to to go to school and and to to do business um, at a community level. Uh, And obviously one hopes that those relationships do not undermine human rights. Great, Godfrey. Thank you. Zach? So I think it's important, and we've alluded to this, uh, that there are three dimensions to this. So one, there, there are these extraordinary transitions underway across the horn. Two, this blitz of new money and engagement from the Gulf. Um, But three, also because of this new Chinese base, just six miles from the United States only military base in Africa and a new port there, um, means the the Horn and the Red Sea have also become a theater for great power rivalry. That's where I think the African states uh, risk getting lost in the mix. So I think with proper sort of management on both sides of the Red Sea, I'd argue the African and Gulf countries can benefit from new engagement. Um, And to this end, I think some have called for a Red Sea forum, right? A a kind of collective that could work together to secure the region's waterways, regulate migration, um, achieve food security, uh, manage conflict and displacement. So I think this is a really interesting and worthwhile idea. Um, I also think it's unlikely to be realized in the near term and until a number of things sort of mature. And one um, is that states in the Horn, and Godfrey alluded to this, uh, advance their domestic reforms and this kind of regional integration such that they can articulate shared interests and and needs with Gulf Partner with Gulf partners, but on a more equal footing. You know, right now they're very asymmetric as I mentioned. Um, two in terms of what needs to change for a Red Sea Forum, I think Middle Eastern rivals, and by by the way, none of which is really strong enough to achieve dominance, um, need to end this senseless um, Gulf spat or at least de-escalate. And three, um, I think, and this comes in the context of John Bolton's recent recent speech about Africa, which was really a speech about China. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Washington and Beijing need to realize some kind of equi- equilibrium 
uh, in the region. Now, none of these things are sure things, um, but I think until there's progress on each, the Red Sea could remain a kind of dangerous arena for three-dimensional competition. Yeah, I agree. Rachel? As analysts, Judd, you and I have always talked about short-term threats and then kind of longer-term strategic threats. And in my mind, this definitely falls into the latter camp. So in terms of our the West's engagement in general, with whether it's the Gulf or with China, you know, the Red Sea and what we're all doing there doesn't really float to the top of that agenda. But maybe in some of these more strategic conversations, that's something that could be considered to talk about. And I think it would behoove us as, as Africa followers to better understand the drivers and motivations coming from some of these Middle Eastern countries or from China, and probably would be advantageous to them to understand what the African perspective is, too. So I think there's room for dialogue there. I just want to put a fine point on a couple of, the, of what you guys have said. So I think the idea of a Red Sea Forum is excellent. We've seen examples of this kind of coordination back during the Somali famine when uh, David Cameron brought together with the London Conference on Somalia and he had Gulf state actors and he had the Europeans and he had the Africans there to have a conversation. What I like about the Red Sea Forum, it's not the West that's doing the convening. It is potentially the Africans doing the convening. Mm-hmm. And so we did potentially. Yeah, so there have been a few attempts. The Saudis, <laughs> the, the Africans should be convening it. Like why it shouldn't be the donors always doing it because it changes uh, the focus and the priorities. But we have to be engaged at a much higher level. Um, there is no senior level engagement on this issue, and it is a strategic problem. It does, does touch on China. It also touches on you know stability investments, both our security investments and our commercial potential commercial investments. So I'd like to see the Red Sea become an African initiative. That's one. And I'd like to see someone at the you know the deputy secretary level focus on this issue. I mean, it'd be great to have Pompeo. But there's got to be someone who really has the heft of the U.S. government and signal this is an important issue. We're aware of it. And we're going to bring together those two communities that Rachel brought together, mentioned. We're going to bring together Africans and uh, the Gulf states. And if we need to, China as well. But we've got to get a handle on this. You're right that the U.S. doesn't necessarily need to be or should be uh, out front in it. But I think there are things that we and other states can do, including you know, for example, Pompeo and others could lean on the Gulf states to, as I mentioned, resolve this yes. Gulf. Mm-hmm. So no one is benefiting from this. And that would go a long way towards de-escalating, uh, you know, the game, the great game that's now being played uh, in the Horn of Africa. Well, I didn't think we were going to resolve this Absolute, problem today in this not. podcast. <laughs> so, but so, but I think we put a lot of great issues on the table. Let me thank uh, Gottfried, Zach, and Rachel for coming. I should also note that sister program here, the Middle East program, has also written a paper about the Gulf states in Africa. So I'd recommend reading that um, alongside Zach's. Uh, thanks everyone for coming. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.